0: Uh, Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. Uh, Today, we're very happy to have Liz Cripps from Edinburgh returning to London. Liz studied at at UCL, um, did her PhD there, and um, she's been in Edinburgh for some years now. And she's going to talk to us today um, about um, justice, integrity, and moral community. The title's somewhat changed. It's become more explicit now what the title is, and the, the question is. Do parents owe it to their children to bring them up as good global climate citizens? And Liz is going to keep us in suspense in the answer to that question. Liz, thank you. Okay, um, thank you, Tim. And um, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real privilege to be here today. Um, I think perhaps particularly for me because, as Tim mentioned, I was a PhD student just round the corner in UCL, so it's, it's great to be back. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is um, thank you very much to those of you who've read the paper. Um, Since I sent in the draft, I've discussed the paper with colleagues and I've made um, some tweaks to the argument. I hope I've improved the argument. So what you've seen is essentially a slightly earlier draft of what I'm going to be presenting today. As part of that, as Tim mentioned, I've changed the title and that's because um, we felt that my colleagues and I on discussion that the um, green parenting was a bit too vague and in fact could be misrepresentative of what I was actually arguing. So, one thing I've been um, thinking about recently is, what does it mean to be a good parent in the era of global climate change? And that's going to give rise to a lot of questions, but one of them is, do parents have a duty to bring their children up capable of responding and motivated to respond morally to climate change? And the the question I'm actually going to focus on today is whether this is something that parents owe to their own children. Because, of course, there is also a possible argument that would say, as part of the duties that one has to victims of climate change, you should be trying to bring children up motivated in this way because getting them on board is going to be a key part of mitigating climate change. But I'm focusing on whether this is something essentially that is part of um, parents' duty to bring their children up um, and develop their moral capacity. And this is a duty that's sort of widely accepted in general terms as duty to develop your child's moral capacity in the literature on parenting duties. But that in turn gives rise to some questions which are going to um, come up today. One of them obviously is why should parents have this duty? Another again is why is this specifically owed to the child rather than say something that we do for the benefit of society as a whole? We might also ask, and here I'm, I'm building, borrowing a distinction that comes up in the debate on the duty to cultivate one's child's capacity for autonomy, we might question whether this is a duty to, for only to facilitate the child's ability to, to act morally, so essentially to give them the capacity and understanding to do the right thing, as it were, or whether it's a duty to go further and actually motivate them to do it, to promote this. And of course the question that further arises is whether any such moral um, duty on the part of parents would extend to the kind of more complex duties that we acquire in our globalized, and in particular, as far as I'm concerned today, our warming world. So given that I have limited time and space, I'm going to um, make certain assumptions, and I'm drawing these um, from discussions in in two um, fairly well-established literatures. So, I'm assuming that parents have certain duties to their children, and um, that these include a duty to um, secure your children's physical and emotional needs in childhood. And that would also include giving them certain um, of the intrin- some of the intrinsic goods of childhood, um, as Samantha Brennan puts it. I'm also assuming that parents have a duty to prepare their children for adulthood in the society that they're going to live in, including ensuring that they get an education and helping them to develop the necessary capacities. Oh, sorry, are you so, struggling to not see? Sure. Um, and I'm, a certain quality of parent-child relationship is going to be a part of both of these. When it comes to climate change, I'm simply assuming that climate change constitutes a collective moral failure. And this is something that could be argued for either negatively, so it's some kind of a violation of a collectivise-no-harm principle, or could be um, defended um, as a failure to fulfill a positive duty to organize to protect the basic interests of of others. So some kind of collectivized principle of beneficence, to put it another way. Assuming that there's a shared duty um, to organize, to respond to that, and that if that were to take place, if there were to be um, organized collective action, Um, effectively at a global level on climate change, then individuals would acquire certain duties as part of that. And these would be called climate justice duties. But individuals also have duties in the absence of this kind of collective action or rather, while it's in the process of being brought about. And some people would call these climate justice duties as well. And I'm just gonna borrow that vocabulary for today, although it doesn't massively hang on it whether we just call them moral climate duties or, or duties of climate justice. And these would include um, duties to um, promote effective collective action. They can include um, duties to cut one's own individual emissions, change one's own lifestyle. And they could include duties to aid the victims of climate change directly. And it's up for debate in the literature and I'm leaving it open. um, Which of these has priority and to what extent this could vary and why across individuals. So against this background, what I'm looking at today is this possible duty, the duty to bring one's child up to be a good global climate citizen. And there's various things that that could include. So it could include educating your child about climate change and the associated human harms, enabling them to understand climate change as a collective moral failure, motivating them to respond morally, and discussing with them or involving them in whatever you, the parent, are doing at an individual level to respond. So whether that's promoting collective action, cutting emissions or trying to aid victims directly. A further possible part of this duty would be um, bringing your child up in a way that they're not um, committed to lifestyles, either through um, a strong ideological conviction or just because of their central interest dependent, then they're not completely committed to lifestyles that are incompatible with climate justice. A few things it's worth um, briefly clarifying at the beginning. Firstly, um, I'm talking about at the moment a duty that applies to affluent parents Um, Secondly, I'm not defending here, and this comes back to my change of title, I'm not defending a duty to give your child a comprehensive green or deep green conception of the good. So I'm not arguing that parents have a duty to teach their children that there's um, intrinsic value, intrinsic moral significance in the um, survival of certain species or ecosystems or that non-human animals have rights. I mean, I have sympathy with some of those views, but I'm I'm not defending that at the moment. The other point to make is that obviously there's going to be an element of age sensitivity in fulfilling this duty. So I'm not suggesting that we should be showing three-year-olds pictures of tsunami victims or that we should be expecting them to kind of grasp the collective moral failure at stake here. Um, uh, There are considerations of their emotional abilities, but also their capacity in terms of their general cognitive development and so on. And there's also the question of these intrinsic goods of childhood. So um, Colin McLeod, for example, suggests that one of these intrinsic goods of childhood is childhood innocence, and kind of giving them too much of of the horrible truth too early could be said somehow to conflict with that. So there's age sensitivity, but at the same time, there are reasons to think that this is a duty that could have implications for the whole of childhood, and that's because there's reason to think that moral development does take place gradually from early childhood through to early adulthood, rather than just being something that happens later on in childhood. And of course, in terms of any um, interest dependence on certain lifestyles that a child could acquire, that could be something that starts early on as well. So this is how um, I'm going to structure the discussion today. <coughs> I'm going to begin with two arguments that are at least suggested, I think, in the parental duties literature for this general duty for parents to um, develop their child's moral capacity. The idea, sorry, it should be a special duty, but in the, the sense that there's a, the, the moral capacity is just a general moral capacity. So the idea that parents might owe this to their, to their children. One is the um, social penalties argument, which is quite pragmatic and says, well, society will penalise those who don't act morally. The other is um, what I call the moral integrity argument. And that says, well, children need to grow up to act morally, to do the right thing, because if they don't, then, then somehow they won't have lived a fully good or flourishing human life. Now, I find both of these problematic in the current context for slightly different reasons, Um, but I think that there's a version of the second argument that could be more plausibly offered. And that's what I call the moral capacity argument. And that says, well, even if we don't don't need, in order to lead a full or flourishing human life, we don't need actually to do the right thing, nonetheless, it might be the case that children are owed the capacity to do so because of what what they need need in order to live a full human life or what they might need. I then offer a rather different argument, which starts from a a twofold premise, one of which is that um, parents have these climate duties too, And the other is that parents and children are in this certain relationship, which has great significance for the development and um, welfare of the child. I then go on to look at two um, objections, um, one of which is an objection to my last argument and says, well, that just um, doesn't give sufficient priority to parental duties, And then um, a more general argument to to the whole discussion, which says, well, any duty of this kind um, would would come into conflict with the duty that parents have to develop their child's capacity for autonomy. So let's begin with the social penalties argument. So this says, well, society will tend to penalise immoral behaviour reward moral behaviour. So if a child is as a pragmatic matter going to need a moral capacity if they're going to have a genuine ability to thrive as an adult in their community. So because a parent has his duty to prepare their child for adulthood in their society, they have a duty to develop their moral capacity. Now the problem with this argument as far as my paper is concerned, is that this just doesn't seem to extend to the kind of duties I'm talking about here. So when it comes to positive duties to those with whom we don't share a state, never mind a generation, um, or even um, collectively acquired negative duties to, to such people, then it's just not true that society penalises us for acting immorally. In fact, it might be said that the reverse is true. So this argument just doesn't extend to a duty to bring a child up as a good global climate citizen. So I'm going to turn instead to what I think is is a more interesting um, line of inquiry. And that focuses instead on what it means to function or flourish or live well, however you want to put it, as a moral agent, to live a a full human life. And I'm going to start by sort of trying to fill out um, what I think might be meant by that that in a way that I hope will be useful for the argument. So it seems that there are... um, three perspectives from which, as human beings, we face the world and we're given central reasons to act. So one is the perspective of our own interests, our own aims, our own ambitions, our own um, values that we hold. The other is um, what we might call the interpersonal perspective, so that the relationships that we have with other individual human beings, which also give us reasons to act in certain ways and, as we're discussing today, could be said to give us certain moral duties. And finally, there's the perspective of the moral agent in a more general or impersonal sense, and that's the perspective from which, um, I'm assuming at at a minimum, the serious suffering of other human beings gives us central reason to act, to respond. So starting from um, from this viewpoint, Then the moral integrity argument, which is suggested by at least some in the um, parenting literature, seems to say, well, in order to succeed um, from the personal perspective, in order to lead a good or flourishing human life, you also need to succeed from the moral perspective. In other words, you need moral integrity understood as living within moral boundaries. If this were the case, then parents would have a duty not only to facilitate, but actually to promote moral behaviour by their children. And given the link between um, avoidable human suffering and anthropogenic climate change, this would seem to extend to a duty to bring up one's child as a good global climate citizen. But I find this problematic. And the reason I find it problematic is because of what, what it means being prepared to say to people about how wrong they are in assessing how their own lives are gone. So essentially what we're saying is if these um, children go up to live lives that, um, in which they don't act morally wrong, then those lives have not only been bad from a moral perspective, but have actually been bad for them. So we're saying they're acting against their own interests, even if they don't think they are. So when it comes to the um, climate change case, we'd be saying to SUV drivers or those who lobby against rises in fuel taxes, for example, we'd be saying not only, well, you're doing something that's morally wrong, and in that, in those cases, I'd generally be happy to say, but we'd be saying, you're doing something that's bad for you. In other words, we'd be overruling the kind of cons- even considered informed judgments that individuals make about what's in their own interests. And this seems a very controversial claim to be relying on. So what I want to do is to try and retain this three-perspective starting point, but offer what I hope is a less controversial argument, an argument that relies instead on the capacity for integrity, including, but not necessarily limited to, moral integrity. So there's two versions of this argument, which I call the moral integrity argument. On the stronger one the claim is something like this well as human beings we are all moral agents even if some aren't motivated by that perspective in practice so we all need the capacity the understanding and ability to act morally now the reason i think this is less controversial than the, the version i just rejected is that it seems that it's less problematic to say somebody can be mistaken about how well their life is going If the thing that they're missing, that we're saying they're missing, is something that they don't have the capacity or understanding or ability to appreciate, so it's not something that can be said to have made an informed decision not to do. There's also some evidence for biological factors in, in moral development. But I think there's also a weaker version of this argument which would do a lot of the work um, in my paper for me. And that just says, well, some people are motivated by the moral perspective to the extent that it is a central part for them of how well their lives go, whether they are living in line with it. Parents can't know whether their child is going to grow up to be one of those people, but they will know that if they are and they don't have that moral capacity, the ability to to live according to the moral perspective, then um, they're their quality of life will be significantly undermined, so they owe it to them to give them the opportunity. So this argument would be a duty to facilitate, although not necessarily to promote, moral behaviour by one's children. But does it also extend to a duty to facilitate acting as a good global climate citizen? So we might say, well, okay, but why not just bring your child up capable of acting morally generally and leave it to them whether they're going to apply this to um, climate change or not? And I think that there are some reasons why there are um, extra things required of parents in order genuinely to give their children the capacity to act as a good global climate citizen. So one of these is that the kind of harms done by climate change, the suffering that it causes, isn't immediately visible in the way that it is if you individually cause an individual harm to someone. This is suffering by future generations and by people in faraway parts of the world. So um, you need at least some basic grasp of climate science and some understanding of collective harms and failure to aid just to be able to grasp the moral situation. It's also the case that the kind of skills that would be involved in fulfilling this duty are going to be slightly different. So this is not just a case of extrapolating from the kind of, no, don't hit your sister, that's bad, that we tell our children all the time. Fulfilling these duties is going to require understanding your place in a kind of collective scheme of things and, and what influence position and what difference you could make and using your moral judgment about that. So essentially what's involved are what we might call global citizenship skills rather than simply refraining from action or, from, or acting in certain individual ways. <coughs> the third reason is that society, far from penalising um, immoral behaviour in this sense, is actually set up to give us what we might call socio-psychological blocks to acting um, on these duties, for seeing, to seeing them and fulfilling them, and this is something that's documented, both generally when it comes to dis- duties to distant strangers, but is also documented specifically in the case of climate change. So it seems that parents who are going genuinely to give the children their ability, to give children the ability to act as good global cli- um, climate citizens, um, would have to give them the insight to try and see be- beyond these blocks to um, to break them down, and to see them for what they are. So a parallel, which of course isn't a direct analogy, but I think um, might be useful to bring the point out, would be if you're, if you're bringing up a girl and you want her to grow up to see herself as an equal and to not to see herself as limited to certain roles by society or required to look or act in a certain way to succeed, then you have to bring her up with the insight to see beyond the gender stereotypes that society and the media is going to throw at her the whole time. And I think something parallel would be going on here. The fourth reason why I think um, more is needed um, to give the the ability to act as a good global climate citizen appeals to a broader understanding of integrity. So, so far I've been talking about moral integrity understood as living within moral boundaries, fulfilling your moral duties, if you like. But we could understand integrity more broadly as requiring that the central aims, interests, and values of your life were broadly in line with one another. And central pervasive conflict between the three human perspectives that I've talked about would be very difficult to live with for anyone who was motivated by all of them. Now, um, an example I've been thinking about might be you can imagine um, the child of of slave owners who was brought up and taught by her parents to have a very strong ideological belief in in the rightness of this is the way of life, and also to have her central interests um, completely bound up in having all the things done for her that that slaves have done. But that person could then um, come to appreciate the, the serious moral wrongness of the human suffering that was being done through this, and in that case would face, I think, some kind of problematic um, pervasive conflict between these perspectives, the moral and the personal, and to some extent the interpersonal. And this kind of conflict can be so undermining that I think it's plausible that parents owe it to children to spare them this if they can. And in the current context, this would mean um, avoiding giving them um, an ideological commitment to fossil fuels as kind of the only viable way of life. And it would also give them a duty not to make their children sort of unavoidably dependent on um, fossil fuels-type lifestyles for their central interest satisfaction. And I think there are limits to how far this goes because actually we are quite adaptable. But you might, for an example, would be a child who was brought up completely addicted to high-speed, long-distance travel. That would seem to be in conflict with a world of, of climate justice. The other point to make um, on this is that this needn't actually just be conflict with the moral perspective because the climate change is likely to have a serious impact on the children and grandchildren of current children. So actually if they are brought up um, with ideologies or with their own central interests dependent on retaining um, climate injustice, then they have this conflict between their own interests and the interests of some of those who are going to be dearest to them. So actually this gives a further argument that might be unique to this case for parents to avoid putting them in that position. So that's what I call the um, moral capacity argument. There's a further question which I think I need to address here. And this comes up um, in a debate between Harry Brighouse and Eamon Callan on um, autonomy and the duty to cultivate autonomy. And this essentially is, is it actually possible for a parent to facilitate their child acting as a moral agent without also in practice promoting it? So if you do all this, if you, if you educate your child and tell them what their moral duties would be, aren't you also effectively going to be motivating them to act on that as well? And my response, which is pretty much parallel to the one Harry Brookhouse makes, would be, well, maybe not, but that's not actually a problem for me because I began with the question of whether there's this general duty to um, facilitate and to promote um, acting as a good global climate citizen. And if what I've ended up is an argument for one of them with the other one as an inevitable side effect, then that, that doesn't trouble me, so long, of course, as it doesn't make it harder to avoid the objections that I'll face later. So that's one argument that essentially extends an argument existing for developing one's child's moral capacity. I now want um, to put forward for consideration a possible other argument, and this, which I call the relationship or moral community argument, has a twofold starting point. So firstly, I start from the point of view that parents (coughs) are moral agents and they have these climate justice duties too. Now this is something I've been kind of assuming when I've talked about whether you should involve your child in whatever you're doing to fulfil these duties, but now I'm putting that centre stage. And the other sort of strand, uh, element of this argument, which I'm also putting centre stage, is the parent-child relationship. So the relationship between parent and child makes a unique contribution to the well-being and development of children. And so it's plausible that a certain quality of relationship is among the things that a parent owes to their child. One way of filling this out might be to say, um, as Brickhouse and Swift do, um, that there's a duty to secure um, sufficient familial relationship or intimacy goods, so shared activities, things like reading bedtime stories with your child. But the other way in which we might fill it out would be to say, but it's important not to undermine that relationship in central ways. Um, for example by undermining trust. And an extreme example of what I mean by this would be a parent who ticks all the boxes in terms of um, trying to ensure their child in an education and help them to develop the capacities for adult life, who also um, make sure that they have lots of shared activities together. But turns out, when the child is, say, an adolescent or a young adult, to have been leading a double life all along, to have another, par- another partner and another family that didn't know each other, about each other around the corner. And that would seem to be the kind of thing that could undermine the relationship um, and undermine a lot of the good that the relationship had done. The child, even if the boxes were ticked in terms of these kind of intimacy goods. So, from this twofold starting point, I want to um, suggest another argument for bringing up your child as a good global climate citizen. And that could be an argument um, definitely for facilitating, but also I think for promoting responding to the collective moral failures of climate change. So, this I think is how the argument goes. So the parent, or in fact anyone, who fulfills moral duties is effectively acknowledging their place in the community of moral agents, so of those who are entitled to moral consideration and required to show it to one another. If she's fulfilling um, climate justice duties, she's acknowledging herself to be a member of a global and intergenerational moral community. So she's identifying herself with the community of those who are entitled and required to show at least basic moral consideration to one another by virtue of their common humanity. The parent also knows that she's in this relationship with her child which is life-shaping and in which at the moment at least the influence is very asymmetric. So she has a very great influence on the child's future prospects and future options. So if this parent involves their child in what they're doing um, to fulfil their climate justice duties, teaches them, motivates them to to fulfil them themselves, then she's acknowledging that child as a future member of the same global moral community and enabling and encouraging him to play his part in it. If she doesn't do this, then it seems to me that something is missing. And I've been trying to fill out exactly, pin down exactly what it is that I think this is. And I think it's something like respect, which is a key part of any flourishing or functioning human relationship. And of course, when it comes to children, respect isn't going to involve all the things that showing respect to an adult does, so it doesn't require giving them... um, same unrestricted or almost unrestricted scope to live by the consequences of their own decisions but there is still an element that I think does apply and that would be respect um, for the other person as a fellow human being and so a fellow moral agent or in this case a future moral agent. So it seems that um, if the parent um, fails to fulfil their um, their duty to bring the child up as a good global Um, climate justice citizen climate citizen then what they're doing is they're failing properly to value their child as a future adult and a future member of that moral community a community with which by their own actions they've identified themselves and there's um, an argument that paul buhabib offers and which i think has useful parallels with this although it's in a slightly different context so she has a, he has an argument sorry, that um, parents don't um, have to prioritise or shouldn't prioritise their own children over fulfilling their wider moral duties. And that's because in failing to fulfil those wider moral duties they're failing to acknowledge the individual moral worth of other people and that he suggests is incompatible with properly valuing your child for their own individual worth. And the suggestion here is obviously not quite the same, but I think it has, has similar elements, and it's this element that you can't properly be valuing your child as a future member of the same global moral community <coughs> that you're part of if you're not, um, in view of your um, unique influence over them, enabling and encouraging them to play a part in it. And the second strand, if you like, of this argument is that it seems to me that this omission could be very damaging to the relationship. So one way that we might try and bring that out would be by considering the position of the older child, the adolescent, even the young adult, who's reflecting on this situation, who knows that their parent is fulfilling these climate justice duties, and so acknowledging this is a very important moral end, but who also knows that that same parent hasn't in any way um, prepared them or enabled them or helped them to play a part in the same community, who has perhaps even allowed them to develop interests and ideologies that would make it much harder for them to play their part in that. And it seems that the parent who's doing this would be sending an implicit message to their child that goes something like this. They're saying, yes, um, I'm doing this, I think it's important, I'm acknowledging myself to be part of this um, global level moral community, those human beings who are entitled to and required to show basic moral respect to one another I also know that I have this very great influence over you and what you do, but it doesn't matter to me whether you're unable to or whether you go on to play your part in that global moral community. It doesn't matter whether you respond appropriately to moral need. And I think this is, is very different from failure to include one's child in other activities. So you can imagine the parent going off mountain biking, say, or to French class and saying implicitly or explicitly to their child, Look, this is just something I'm into. It doesn't matter whether you're into it or not. In terms of um, this child's future um, as a moral agent and part of that same moral community that the parents acknowledging their own place in, this seems more like a failure to teach one's child the language of the country you both live in. So that's my my second argument. I now want to look um, at a couple of objections. So the first one is an objection to the last argument, the last um, suggestion that I put forward. And that says, well, look, you can't do what you just did. You can't take parents' climate justice duties as the background against which you're going to establish their parental duties. And that's because there's this widespread perception that the reverse is true, that you have parental duties, duties to your children, and you fulfil them, and only after that do you have to worry about um, what you're going to do in terms of fulfilling duties to distant strangers. So the object is saying, what we need to do is compare two scenarios. The scenario in which the parent fulfils their climate justice duties, and so gets this further duty to bring their children up as good global climate citizens, and the scenario in which parents just don't fulfill their climate justice duties in the first place. And the objector is saying, well, scenario A is worse for the child, and that's because climate justice, whatever our efforts, just may not happen. So you could just be setting up your child for constant frustration by bringing them up motivated to care about this end, and for social disadvantage in the meantime, given that lots of other people don't care about it. So the object is essentially saying, look, if you're thinking only about your child, they would be better off not caring about justice or not caring about climate justice in the current and likely to continue unjust world. So you don't have um, this requirement to fulfil your climate justice duties because they conflict with the interests of your child, and so you don't this further duty that this um, way of defending the duty to bring your child up as a good global climate citizen just doesn't follow. Well, I don't think this um, objection works. Um, But in responding to it and in in shedding some light on on the discussion, I think it's it's useful to break it down into two possible um, versions of the objection and to draw a distinction between um, bringing your child up um, to a certain threshold level of of flourishing or opportunity, what we might call not, not just a level for an adequate or decent life, but for a good human life, and giving your child continued welfare or opportunity boost even above that. So given that distinction, there there are two possible um, versions of the objection. On one of these, parents should, or at least they could legitimately, go for the second scenario, the scenario in which they don't fulfil their climate justice duties, because the child's life would be harder if they did and then also motivated their child to do so. On the second version of the objection, the parent should go for scenario B, because scenario A is actually incompatible with setting up a child for even a threshold level good human life. So I think we can reject the second version quite straightforwardly by rejecting the premise. I mean, there's no reason to think that a full or good human life is incompatible with being motivated to act morally on climate change, even if climate justice isn't collectively achieved. So we're not talking about committing your child exclusively and only to pursuing this esoteric end and, and so having a very isolated life. We're talking about enabling them to understand the collective moral failures of climate change among the many other things that they might understand and do. And that is something that many people do already understand. And being motivated to respond to them, which is something that communities are already being built around. So I think we can reject that version, but the more interesting version is the first one. So this one on which it's simply harder for the child under scenario A, so the parent can go for scenario B. And there's two ways of responding to that. So one of them is to question the explicit premise. And we could do that building on the moral capacity argument that I already offered. So in other ways, we could try and reject the claim that it's worse to be the individual who understands climate change and who tries morally to respond to it, even if others don't, than it would be to to be an individual who isn't so motivated. So yes, it's true that collective moral failure can mean a great deal of individual frustration for those who are motivated by the moral perspective. That's something I've talked about elsewhere. But it's also the case that conflict between the moral perspective and the other perspectives of one's life is likely to be reduced by parents fulfilling these kind of duties. So by things like climate education and early lifestyle adjustments that would give the child less of a vested interest in climate injustice and might also make it likely that they would form relationships with others who who were similarly motivated. So at the very re- at least, it seems that there's reason to think that this individual would be no worse off than the individual who hasn't even been given the capacity to be a good global climate citizen. And it's also worth remembering, I think, that we're not just talking about conflict with the moral perspective. Um, there's interpersonal perspective, which is also threatened by climate change. So this is also something about how hard it would be if one's own interests were in conflict with those, of, of or one's own interests and aims were in conflict with the interests of one's children. And grandchildren. But even if that didn't convince, I don't think the objection would go through, and that's because there's an implicit premise here which I don't think works, and that says that parents can permissibly prioritise their own children even above ensuring them some kind of threshold level good life. So there's three claims that could be made here, and I think we could accept the first two without having to accept the last. So it's one thing to say, well, parents have their duties to give their children a good childhood and the opportunity for a good life um, up to this threshold level, and these duties take priority over their um, duties to try and bring about global or climate justice. We might further say, other things being equal, parents have a duty to their child to make those children's prospects better rather than significantly worse, even above that threshold level. But there's a third claim which doesn't I think follow from the first two that says this second duty can also be prioritized over global or climate justice duties and it doesn't seem that there's anything in the significance of the parent-child relationship or the needs of the child to justify this third claim which would essentially give unlimited license to ignore the serious suffering of others so I don't think it's a problem to factor the parents climate duties into the discussion so long as that's compatible with them fulfilling a threshold-level parenting duty. So even if the first option for rejecting the objection failed, I think we can still reject it. This brings me to the other, I think, most obvious objection to my argument. And that appeals to the widely held parental duty to cultivate one's child's capacity for autonomy. Um, And I'm going to focus here on a duty to facilitate acting autonomously rather than promoting it, but actually I think most of what I say would apply to either. So this is something that's widely accepted, and I certainly don't want to disagree with it. I think think it's it's correct. But this duty um, places obstacles, and this is widely discussed in literature, but places obstacles in some kind of religious or cultural upbringings because of the way those upbringings shape children's values. So the objection says, so how can you justify shaping children's values by bringing them up to be good global climate citizens? So to respond to this, um, I want firstly briefly to talk about what it might mean to cultivate one's child's capacity for autonomy. So if we take the Razian view of autonomy um, as essentially meaning being part author of your own life having um, adequate um, short-term and long-term options, having the necessary mental capacities and being free from coercion and manipulation. Then... One thing that parents would need to do to ensure that their children had this capacity would be to make sure that they grew up with the capacity for rational reflection and thought, that they were genuinely able to revise and potentially reject even their own considered views and plans of life, that they could engage critically with others' views, that they were capable of questioning their own and others' judgment, including the judgment of those who were closest to them. So against that background, I'm going to try and reject the objection in two ways, but both of them start from the same point. And that is that when we're talking about the duty to bring your child up as a good global climate citizen, the only only moral claim that I'm suggesting that parents should simply seek to get their children to endorse (coughs) is a very minimal moral claim. And that's the claim that causing or failing to prevent the serious suffering of other human beings, collectively or individually, is a moral failure. And broadly speaking, that will give rise to shared and individual duties to respond to it. So the first line of response is to say, well, actually, I think fulfilling this duty is perfectly compatible with developing the kind of skills for autonomy that I was just talking about. So we're not talking here about a duty fulfilling which would require um, rejecting exposure by your children to rational debate or to alternative ways of thinking. So um, we're not talking, for example, um, about um, rejecting scientific education for your child. This is something that comes up um, and applies obviously only to a minority of religious p- parents, but it comes up in, in the literature, this idea of those who would, for example, reject um, scientific teaching about evolution for their children. In fact, in fulfilling this duty, giving a child, the child awareness of the scientific consensus on anthropogenic climate change would be part of fulfilling the duty. It's also the case that um, in teaching your child anything, you can um, either lay down the law to them or you can adopt a more discussion, question and answer based approach. And in the case of this duty, there actually seems to be reason to think the second approach would be necessary. It would be necessary to um, educate your child, to teach them to use their own judgment. And that's because I left it open and I think, I think it is rightly still open in the discussion what exactly individuals have as a primary duty in this context, whether they should be promoting collective action, whether they should be aiding victims, whether they should be cutting their own emissions or some combination of all of these. This is, this is still up for debate. <coughs> and also the question of how exactly this varies according to individual circumstances. So the parent who's fulfilling this duty isn't just going to be telling their child what they're doing and requiring them to do it themselves. Beyond giving them this kind of minimal general level moral claim about the wrongness of the human suffering that's being caused, there's going to be a great deal of need for discussion, for explaining what they're doing, encouraging their children to think about it, to question, to use their moral judgment. So in many ways it seems conducive with developing the kind of skills for autonomy that we talked about. The other way of responding to this objection is to stress a point that I've already made, that we're not talking here about a duty to impart a comprehensive conception of the good, um, either a religious or cultural one, or for that matter, what we might call a deep green view. So it's quite possible that a parent could come up to endorse, um, could come to endorse the kind of duty I'm talking about here through that view, say through a Christian ethic or through um, a cultural view that gave certain significance to certain parts of the world, um, or, to, or, for that matter, a deep green view that gave um, intrinsic moral significance to the um, survival of certain species, or to species in general. But that's not the argument here. That's not what I'm relying on here. Instead, I'm talking about a duty to give one's child a minimal moral view, so minimal that it could be taken as kind of common ground, in a Rawlsian sense, a lot, uh, across lots of different comprehensive conceptions so long as those conceptions of the good were reasonable in the sense, a sort of globalised Rawlsian sense, but they were compatible with accepting that all human beings are entitled to at least basic moral consideration. So to put this another way, Matthew Clayton has a test um, for legitimate parental authority to pass one's views on to one's children, and this um, acceptability to public reason test, at least a globalised version of that, could be passed by this conception that I'm talking about here. It's also the case that in practice, the no harm principle and the principle of beneficence, the principle on which um, this minimal moral view is based, are widely shared. And the collectivized versions of those principles do follow very intuitively from them, so much so that when um, as I was attempting philosophically to defend collectivizing these two principles and I would tell non-philosophers what I was doing, the response I would quite often get was, well, isn't that obvious? Um, and we also only need one of these collective vice principles for um, climate, duties, climate justice duties to follow. So I think it's reasonable to suggest that um, when it comes to this minimal moral view, it's not or needn't be subject to the same kind of trade-offs as comprehensive views might be um, against this duty to cultivate autonomy. So when um, you have comprehensive, deeper green or other religious or cultural views, they're going to be based on deeply held intuitions, but they're also going to have elements which are reasonably rejectable. And so there is this tension, which is, is much discussed in the literature, to resolve between them and facilitating um, the child's future auto- um, scope for autonomy. So there are many ways, um, many points along the spectrum at which um, that might be um, might be defended, but one um, is Brickhouse and Swift who say, well... It might be necessary to share values to the extent of giving sufficient familial relationship or intimacy goods, but it's also necessary to make sure that the child is always left with sufficient scope to revise or reject their their own considered views in the future. So I'm suggesting that this minimal moral view is so minimal that it can be an exception to this general need (coughs) to make concessions to the duty to cultivate autonomy. And we could do this in either of two ways, sort of following two lines that Clayton suggests when he's talking about justice for education. So um, on the one hand, we could say, well, actually, valuable autonomy is moralised. So when we talk about the kind of autonomy that matters for a good human life, we should really be talking about autonomy within these kind of moral boundaries, within the limits that you don't cause or um, avoidably fail to prevent serious suffering of other human beings. Or we could be saying, well, they do come into conflict, but actually given how um, important, um, how how significant a moral view this is, um, and given that both these duties um, arise from the same starting point in preparing your child for adult life, it's justifiable to allow this end to overweigh the end of cultivating the capacity to autonomy to this very limited extent that it does so. So that brings me um, to the end of my argument. So I've tried to um, defend this um, duty to bring up one's child as a good global climate citizen at two levels. So firstly, as a duty to facilitate their acting in this way through climate education, discussing whatever as a parent you're doing at an individual level to respond, cultivating their capacity for moral judgment, avoiding giving them either ideological commitments to fossil fuels or um, having their central interests dependent on that kind of lifestyle. I've also at least suggested, put forward for consideration the possibility that there's a further duty actually to promote your child acting as a good global climate citizen, which would involve actually involving them in what, making them part of what you're doing at the individual level and encouraging them to respond morally to climate change. I want to finish up by acknowledging a couple of, of final questions. One of these would be, well, why have I talked about climate change? when we have many other duties, including, most obviously in this context, duties in the context of global poverty and to respond appropriately to them. Now, in some ways, I'm happy to accept that and say, well, if this argument has wider implications, then that's a good thing. But there is a way in which it could be pressed on me which is problematic, and I can only, to a limited extent, um, say now how I would try and deal with this. And this is the argument that says, well, look, If parents have these climate justice duties and they also have these other duties, for example, global poverty duties, and there are limits to how much they can be expected to do as individuals given all the constraints on them, then can't they legitimately focus on um, poverty instead of climate change? And wouldn't their duty to involve their child, the last argument I talked about, then be a duty to motivate them to act on global poverty, for example? Now, to some extent... I'm happy to buy that because a lot of the arguments I've offered would still apply, um, but they would apply to a more general duty, say a duty to be a good global citizen. And the sort of level at which moral judgment comes in would just be, as it were, one stage higher up. So the idea would be um, parents um, explain to their child the, the general moral context and all these different problems in the world and then say why they're focusing on this one aspect of it and encourage their child to use their judgment about what's appropriate and what's appropriate for them on which one they respond to. So that would be, I think, okay. But I've had two, I have focused on, on climate change deliberately, and that's for two reasons, which I think um, could potentially be stretched as, as, as an argument to say there is a reason to focus primarily on this at the moment and to focus first on this in um, your duty to educate your child. And that's firstly because pra- climate change does seem to have this almost unique practical urgency in the sense, firstly, that it's a problem which makes almost all other problems worse, but also in the sense that there's a very limited time frame before it becomes exponentially, perhaps unsolvably worse. The other reason is that there are two moral bases for the climate justice duties that I talked about. They could be defended negatively as well as positively. And it's at least possible but the fact that they could be negatively grounded would give a sort of special salience to them. The other question of course would be, well, why have I been talking about parents? Don't other people have these duties? Isn't this if this is something that children are owed? Isn't this a duty that states have to them? Isn't this a duty that maybe collectively we all owe to them? Well, I think it's quite true that others may have um, at least some of these duties. I also think it's true that there are a very diverse range of influences on children's moral development. So not only parents, but also the state, their education system, their peers, the media and so on. And so, of course, there's a case for exploring the duties of others, especially in terms of state education. And that's um, already been done by others in terms of, of justice more generally, but also, for example, the duties that the media might have. And of course, it's also true um, that there will be limits to how much of this parents can actually achieve on their own. But I've focused on parents deliberately for a couple of reasons. One of them is that I think whoever, when it comes to these duties or or any duties to secure children's interests, whoever has the primary duty, so whoever it is that should be doing this in the first instance, it seems reasonable to say that given the parent-child relationship, the parent would have a duty to step in insofar as they can if it's not being adequately fulfilled for their child elsewhere. The other reason is that there are some things that parents can do for their children that schools can't. So in terms of of influence on lifestyle, for example, the parents are going to have much more influence. And there's also ways that they could undermine a lot of what was being done through an education system. You can imagine being taught um, about climate science in school and then coming home to be told by your your parents that it was all rubbish. So there's two reasons why I've focused on parents, and of course my final argument, if, if the second strand of that argument convinced, would add another reason, because that argument made this not just about what was owed to children, but what was required for that parent-child relationship. And so if that convinced, then this would be not just a matter of certain things being done for the child, but, as with so much in the, the parental duties literature, a matter of them being done for the child by her parents. So that brings me to the end of the presentation. Um, I look forward to your questions. Thank you.